It seemed wise to me. We're in the middle of, uh, we're not in the middle of preaching through a book. And uh, so when I finish, we just finished Philippians. When we finish a book, I, I feel free to preach whatever the Lord lays on my heart until he puts me into another, another book to preach verse by verse through. And um, so it seemed good to, uh, to talk about what is commonly called, what is known as Palm Sunday, the Sunday before uh, Jesus uh, goes to the cross and is resurrected. So it seemed good to me. So uh, that's what I thought we would do tonight. The first book I preached through at ICM was the Gospel of John. I, I preached 77 sermons in the Gospel of John. Does that sound like too much? Of course it's not too much. What is the first, ver the first ver uh, verse of the Gospel of John? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, was God. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Verse 14 of, uh, of John chapter 1, and the Word became flesh. There's 77 sermons right there, right? I mean, I preached 77 sermons, and I felt it was time to move on. Uh, it took a year, a little over a year or so. And, uh, but I never really wanted to leave the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is one long, intoxicating look at Jesus. And you can't, in my opinion, look at Jesus enough. John, like no other book in the Bible, holds Jesus up and says, Behold. Behold. See how beautiful He is. See how stunning He is. See how spectacular He is. See how magnificent he is. See how wonderful He is. See how awesome He is. See how breathtakingly compelling He is. And He's all those things. If you know Him tonight, you understand what I'm talking about. He is all of those things. Seventy-seven sermons in the Gospel of John would be comparable to a thimble of water as weighed against all the oceans of the world. I haven't begun to touch the hymn of His garment with 77 sermons. But God has taken on flesh the immortal, invisible, eternal, infinite, almighty Creator. God has come in the flesh. As Paul says in Philippians 2.7, God has uh, been made in the likeness of men. God is laying in a manger. Does it take your breath away? You're not understanding it, beloved. If it does not take your breath away, you've not yet understood it. God is lying in a manger in a nowhere place among the, the donkeys and the goats and the cattle. Yeah, I know. I work this in every chance I get. I work this quote in. Sam's probably heard it a lot. Um, Charles Spurgeon. 19th century uh, preacher over in London talking about the Incarnation. And the reason I'm going down this path is I want you to realize who's coming into Jerusalem on that donkey and who's going to die for you. And this is why I'm starting here. I'm starting in the manger. Okay? I'm starting in, in the manger. God has come in the flesh. Charles Spurgeon said it like this. Infinite yet infant. Eternal yet born. Almighty yet suckled. Upholding a universe but laying in a manger. Is that awesome or what? And every time I share Spurgeon's quote, I have to share J.I. Packer's quote. J.I. Packer says, the more you think about it, the more staggering it is, right? If you'll sit and think about it for 10 minutes, yeah, 
You'll be staggered. <laughs> You'll be staggered. God has come in the flesh. Beloved, if we're not staggered, if we're not astonished, if we're not amazed, we're not getting it at all. We're not understanding it at all. This is a breathtaking event. If it's a fairy tale, it doesn't matter at all, does it? If it's a fairy tale, it does not matter. It's merely a good story among many. It's just another myth, another fable, another legend like so many others in the world. But if it's true, if God's come in the flesh, if God is laying in a manger, if God has become a man, then He matters more than anything else in the cosmos. And He matters more than anything else in your life. If it's true, He matters more than anything else. If it's true, it's colossal, it's titanic, it's epic. If it's true, every human being on the planet is drawn into this event. God has come in the flesh. If it's true, it changes everything. It changes absolutely everything. And beloved, I stand here on the authority of God's Word and I tell you it is absolutely true. God has come for His people. God has come to redeem His people. Jesus says, no man takes my life. But what? I come and lay it down. I come and lay it down for my people. So, what was the aim of, of, of God in having uh, John write the, the Gospel of John? You remember the aim. Who knows the aim? John twenty thirty one. Who knows what it is? You should know. Nobody knows. Okay, or you're just shy. Okay, that's cool. I understand. When I'm sitting out there, I don't like to respond either. I know how it feels. Okay. God says these things have been written that you may what? Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. God is aiming at you and He's aiming at me. He's aiming at men with this Gospel. God means for you to believe it and He means for you to live it. Amen? That's what we talk a lot about in here. We don't just believe principles. We don't just believe uh, propositions. We do propositions. We live principles. How does James say it? We are word doers. We're not deceiving ourselves. Only, only hearing it and deceiving ourselves, we do the Word of God. This is what New Testament biblical Christianity is all about. God means for you to do it. And Jesus says that, that God incarnate says these, these two most awesome words. And if you're a Christian tonight, you've heard these words and you've responded to these words. Jesus says, unbelievably, God says, follow me. Have you heard these words? Have you heard these words? Have you responded to these words? Jesus says, follow me. The eternal, infinite Creator God says, come and go with me. Have you ever had a better invitation? Anyone? That's what Jesus says. He says, come and go with me. Not in some perfunctory, religious, heart-dead, brain-dead way, but 100% come with me. Lay your lives down for me. Abandon yourself to me. Pick up your cross and follow me. Come through the narrow gate. There are hundreds of ways Jesus has said this. He calls us beloved. He doesn't call us to be lukewarm in this. He calls us to be wholeheartedness. 
What is the greatest, what is the, the summation of all the law? That we should what? Someone tell me. We should love the Lord with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength. Beloved, does that describe your Christianity? I know we all fall short, but that's what we're shooting at, right? That's what we're shooting at. That we would love God like that. We would love Jesus like that. We would walk with Him like that. One of the main themes of the Gospel of John is that only a few believed. Only a few really followed. Most rejected Jesus. And tonight as we revisit the events commonly known and called Palm Sunday, we see that possibly up to a million people are celebrating the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. The scene in John 12 you heard read begs the question, where were all these people a few days later when uh, the crowd was crying, crucify Him, crucify Him. You heard them praise Him as He entered the city of Jerusalem. Well, what happened in three or four days? It begs the question. It begs the question. Exactly what were these people cheering for and about on this particular day when Jesus entered the city it's the same thing that's still going on today in much of Christendom. The first century Jews, they wanted the God they wanted. They didn't really want the God that was. And we know that this is rampant all over the planet. It's rampant in, in the human race. But we also know that in these last days, it's also rampant in what is called Christianity. Men have as we've talked about many times, have ignored what Scripture says about Him and they've, they've created a caricature of God. A God they like better. A God who's more user-friendly, right? Not necessarily what the Bible says, but what I like. What I want God to be. This is how it was for the first century Jew. Those people praising Jesus when He came in, into Jerusalem. They wanted a customized God. A, a tailor-made God, right? It's still going on. It's still going on. A God who, who pleases me. A God who, who will go along with my plans. A God who will endorse my ideas. A God who will accommodate my desires. A God who doesn't offend my sensibilities. That's the kind of God the first century Jews wanted as Jesus came into Jerusalem. And in many places where Christianity... Uh, is, is spread. There's this pseudo-Christianity. And men or women are just making up what they want God to be because they don't really like the God of the Bible. It's true, beloved. I don't know if you've experienced this. I've experienced it in my many years as a Christian. How many times have you heard it? Someone says, well, my God would never do that. My God doesn't do that. My God doesn't act that way. My God's not a God of judgment. My God's not a God of wrath. Keith and I were just talking about before the service, Rob Bell's new book where he's discounting the, the concept of hell. My God, would, my God would not allow there to be a hell or that anyone would ever reside there for an eternity. You know, when you hear people talk like that, often you realize that's exactly what they're talking about. When they talk about my God, they're talking about the God they've made up. It's not the God of the Bible at all. You know, either we're Bible believers or we're not. I, I submit to you, if you're not a Bible believer, then you're not a Christian. 
This is the Word of God. The inerrant, infallible Word of God. I get questions all the time. Oh, well, the, how can we trust the Bible? The Bible was written by men. I get all these silly questions. Beloved, do you not, is your God not God enough to reveal and record and preserve His Word for His people? What kind of God is that? It's God's Word, beloved. Amen. And we need to believe it. We need to defend it. We need to live it. So apparently, the, the Jews who were uh, praising Jesus as He comes into Jerusalem, they have a cartoon God in their mind. They want Him to be a political Savior, right? Isn't that what they want? They want a, a revolutionary. They want a, a, a military commander to overthrow Rome. That's what they want. That's what they think they're getting. That's what they want. And in a few days, when he turns out not to be the God they want, they kill him. As John chapter 12 begins, let me just bring you up to speed. Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead. Uh, John, it's in John chapter 11. Uh, we saw Mary, the, the sister of Lazarus, give us all a lesson in true worship as she broke the vial of costly spikenard over him and anointed his head and his feet, took down her hair and, and worshipped Christ in that most touching, touching scene. Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. And, and many Jews had, had come out to Bethany. Now, many of you know that Jerusalem's here and Bethany's here. Bethany's just a few kilometers from Jerusalem. And many had heard about the fact that, God, uh, that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead and they were coming out of Jerusalem to see, to see Jesus. But you remember the hard-hearted stupidity of the religious leaders. Does anyone remember? They never denied or even questioned that a miracle had occurred, that a dead man had been raised. They never even deny it or question it. They just want to kill Jesus. You know, it's that willful unbelief you see all the way through the Gospel of John. And not only do they want to kill Jesus, who else do they want to kill now? Lazarus! It's most inconvenient for them to have him walking around telling his story. So not only do they want to kill Jesus, they want to kill Lazarus. So let me set the stage here. As we pick up verse 12 of chapter 12, Jesus spent the night with Martha and Mary. He just raised Lazarus. Spent the night with Martha and Mary uh, in, in Bethany. Presumably it's Sunday morning. Uh, Jesus leaves uh, Bethany. The multitude uh, mentioned earlier in the chapter that had come out to see Him is, is with Him and, and they're going back to Jerusalem with Him. He ascends the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. And then he is met by the disciples he dispatched. Remember, he sent a couple of disciples to go get something. Does anybody remember what it is? A donkey that he would ride on. A donkey that he would ride on. Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us that Jesus had dispatched his disciples for, for this donkey, a, 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 a colt, probably not much larger than a big dog. Uh, maybe a German shepherd, not much larger, a small colt. Why, why a donkey? Anyone know? He's coming in peace. If he were on a horse, he'd be coming. That's uh, a symbol of war. He's coming in peace. He's on the foal of a donkey. And his disciples threw their garments on the donkey, right? 
And the people were, were throwing palm uh, limbs down on, on, the, on the way and they were throwing their garments down. It was, like, it was like a red carpet for Jesus. And He begins to descend the Mount of Olives to cross over the brook and go into the eastern gate. And let me just interject before I get into the text. This is commonly called the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. <laughs> I've always hated that. Beloved, this is not the triumphal entry of Jesus. Uh, I know it's called that, but let me just, let me just give you my opinion. I, I think that's a superficial description, a uh, surface interpretation of the events. Actually, if we look at Luke 19.41, Jesus was, at one point in this procession, He was weeping. He was weeping. He loved this city. And this city, He knew, would utterly reject Him. This is not a true triumphal entry. This is the coming of a tearful God to give Himself as a sacrifice for the sin of His people. I'll read you a triumphal entry. You want to hear about it? Revelation 19. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. And his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems, and he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. There's a triumphal entry, beloved. And every eye will see it. Every eye will see it. <coughs> Every unbelieving eye and every believing eye and every knee will bow. Every unbelieving knee and every believing knee will bow to King Jesus. You heard Mike read the text and I won't reread the, the whole thing. Uh, John 12. We see in verse 12 that, that the, the multitude was coming out to Jesus. They had heard that Jesus was coming. Uh, verse 13, they, they took the branches of the palm trees and they went out to meet Him and they were crying, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And, he, and, he, and Jesus, finding a young donkey, said on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your King is coming, seated on a donkey's coat. Seated on a donkey's coat. We need to remember verse 12. This is the Passover. How many of you have a clue how many people, how many pilgrims are in Jerusalem during the Passover in the first century? I'd, huh? Lots. lots. <laughs> D, you're right. There were lots. Some scholars estimate up to two million. And they back into this figure from the number of sheep that are, the number of lambs that are sacrificed, which we have record of. And so they back into this number. Two to two and a half million pilgrims during Passover, Jesus is, is coming with a multitude with Him from Bethany. And there's a multitude coming out of Jerusalem to meet Him. Matthew tells us in his Gospel, all the city was stirred. 
All the city was stirred. Verse 13 tells us that the people were spreading out their garments and the palm branches. Again, sort of a red carpet for King Jesus. By the way, this is one of the few incidents in the life of Jesus that's in all four Gospels. You know, anytime you see uh, an event in all four Gospels, you really have to think, wow, God doesn't want me to miss this, right? And I know there, there are probably um, incalculable reasons that God put this in all four Gospels, but there's one that struck me, and I want to share it with you. There's one that struck me. It's there in verse 13. Hosanna! What does Hosanna mean? Someone tell me. What does it mean? That's right, Karen. Did you see my notes? <laughs> You've heard this before. Hosanna! It means, you know, a lot of us, well, I looked it up in the dictionary. Well, the dictionary actually says, an acclamation of praise and adoration. Isn't that what we think? We think it's an acclamation of praise and adoration. Well, it is that. But the true meaning, the Hebrew meaning, is save us, God. Isn't it awesome? As Jesus comes in, they're crying. The Hebrew is saying, Hoshiana, Hoshiana, Hoshiana. It is a prayer. It is a one-word prayer. Save us, O oh God. Save us, O oh God, please. Save us, O oh God, now. Here He comes. Here comes God. On the foal of a donkey. Is this not compelling? The English word Hosanna originates from the Hebrew word Hoshiana. The only, this occurs only in one place in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word Hoshiana. It's in Psalm 118.25. It's the psalm that I read to begin the service. If you go to Psalm 118.25, you will see the English word Hosanna. You will, pardon me, you will not see the English word Hosanna. You will see what the, the word means, what it originally meant. You'll read right there that it says, Save us, please, O God. Save us, please, O Lord. O Lord, do save, we beseech Thee. Hosanna is a one-word prayer. A cry out to God for salvation. And God is answering that prayer. God is answering that prayer with His Son. God says, yes, I will save and I want to make a point here about prayer. We, we get into, we've got into some real good discussions in the young adult Bible study recently about prayer, the mystery of prayer. And, and, I, and I, I try to keep saying that, you know, God is outside of time. He's hearing your prayer in eternity past. Well, I know that blows our finite minds, right? If you have a finite mind, it should be blown. It's, it blows my finite mind. God's outside of time. But what I want to say to you, this prayer in Psalm 118.25, His people are saying, Save us, please, before the foundation of the earth. God is hearing this prayer and He has answered this prayer. Hebrews, pardon me, Ephesians chapter 1. Before the foundation of the world, we were chosen in Him. God has answered this prayer in eternity past. I just thought that was beautiful. I thought it was. God had purposed in eternity past to put His breathtaking grace and mercy and compassion and love on display for all the created order to see. Before Adam drew his first breath and before he rebelled against God, God was answering Hoshiana. 
Hoshiana. And here he comes. You know, God doesn't send a subordinate. He doesn't send an aide. He doesn't send an underling. He doesn't send an assistant to save. Who comes to save? God comes to save His Son. Beloved, that should move you beyond words. If we're, as I said to you earlier, if we're not moved, if we're not stirred, we're not really understanding it. It's just some kind of dead religious dogma to us. If it does not stir our hearts and motivate us to abandon ourselves to this awesome God. For the few moments we have left on the planet. Let me jump over real quick to Luke 19. You guys know the text, right? Luke 19. You guys know it, right? To say it's a it's a parallel account here, Luke 19, verse 37. And as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen. Verse 38 saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Verse 39. And the Pharisees were offended at this. Uh, and they said, they said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Someone tell me what Jesus says in verse 40. How do, can you not love that? How <laughs> can you not love that? Jesus says, if they don't speak, the rocks will shout it. If I'd have given them vocal cords, they'd already be shouting. They know I am. They know I'm El Shaddai. They know I'm God in the flesh. You know, it reminds me of that passage in Job chapter 12 where Job is uh, responding to one of his uh, tormentors. <laughs> and uh, he says, who doesn't, you know, the, he says, ask the birds, ask the fish, ask the earth. There was another one. Ask the beast of the field. Who of those do not know that God has done this? You know, it seems like the, the whole created order knows who I am is. It's just men. It's just men who won't believe. You know, you go back to what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. Men are suppressing the truth and they, they, they will not give thanks. They will not give glory to Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 1 again. They, didn't, they no longer saw fit to acknowledge God. It's only men who deny God. It's only men who deny Christ Jesus. The created order knows who He is. The rocks know who, we are, who He is. I love that text. It always gets me excited. So I want to challenge you, beloved. Don't be bested by a rock. Don't let a rock out-worship you. Don't let a rock out-worship you. You give yourself to Christ and go after Him wholeheartedly. You know, we said it a lot in the Gospel of John when we were making our way through it. It's not that men don't understand. It's that they do understand. You know, I think we operate under a false misconception. And I think it adversely affects our evangelism. It adversely affects our sharing of the Gospel. It ad adversely affects our apologetics. It's not that men don't understand. It's that they do understand exactly what you're saying. And as the psalmist says, the fool has said in his heart, I'll have no God over me. The man knows what you're saying. The man knows he's being confronted by the truth of God. 
It doesn't mean that we're not long-suffering. Yes, we're long-suffering. Yes, we keep loving them. Yes, we keep sharing truth with them. Yes, we keep serving them. That's all part of evangelism. We just keep doing it. But we know it's not simply that they need to cognitively understand. God has to do a work in that heart. God has to do a work in that heart or they're never going to come to Jesus. We heard in the Luke text that I read that the disciples were praising God for all the miracles they had seen. This is one of the signs of His deity. It's one of the signs of His deity. Another biblical proof of His Messiahship was the fulfillment of prophecy. One Old Testament scholar in seminary told me, I've never counted it. I've never seen the list. I should have asked him for it. That there are over 300 Old Testament prophecies fulfilled in Jesus. 300. That's astonishing. Now we see several here. The foremost of which is the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy which occurred five to six hundred years earlier. Let me read it to you from Zechariah 9.9. God's Word says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your King is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a donkey. God is answering the prayer Hoshiana from antiquity. In Genesis 3.15, the first prophecy of Jesus Christ. God has been answering the prayer. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. He's coming to save His people. God said it so clearly in so many different ways. Jesus is my Hoshiana. Jesus answers the prayer Hoshian. And beloved, I want to say to you, and you need to be saying this out in the world, I know that Christians, we are accused of being intolerant and we're accused of being bigots. I understand that. I get that a lot. Um, but we don't say that Jesus is the only way because we made that up or because we're intolerant or because we're bigots. We say it because, oh, God said it. There's not a thousand ways. There's not a hundred ways. There's not twenty ways. There's not ten ways. There's not two ways. There's one way. There's one way. And we got to love people enough. Do you hear what I'm saying? You got to love people enough to tell them there's one way. I know that's politically incorrect. I know. I get that. I know I'm hopelessly not PC. But what I want to tell you is God's not either. God just gives out the truth. And I pray that we would emulate Him in that a hard God-made truth is infinitely more loving than a soft man-made lie. And oh, the lies, the lies, there's just an ocean of lies every day. An ocean of lies bombarding mankind. I was reading this week C.S. Lewis's pilgrimage from atheism to Christianity. And uh, you guys know who C.S. Lewis is, right? Mm -hmm. I'm about done. Let me just share this with you. I don't know how long I've preached. I'm sorry I didn't look at my watch. So, um, Listen to C.S. Lewis. He said, I'm driven to think that whatever else may be true, the popular scientific cosmology at any rate is certainly not. Of course, he's talking about atheistic macro-Darwinism. He, he actually says that boat doesn't float. So he moved on to something like philosophical idealism or uh, theism. He says it must at 
the very worst, be less untrue than scientific cosmology. And idealism, he continues, and idealism turned out when you took it seriously to be disguised theism. And once you accepted theism, you could not ignore the claims of Christ. And when you examined them, it appeared to me that you could, you could uh, not adopt a middle position. I love this about Lewis. He's so clear here. You've, I know you've heard me say this before. Lewis says, Jesus was either a lunatic or he was God. And he goes on to say, and he was not a lunatic. Beloved, it could not be more clear. It could not be more clear. Lies and liars are a dime a dozen. And that's what the Bible says Satan does for a living. One of his best weapons is religion, including pseudo-Christianity, false Christianity. It is one of Satan's best weapons. There are two kinds of people in the world, two kinds of people. Those who suppress and reject the truth of Jesus Christ and those who love it. That's the great line of demarcation. Lewis is right. There's no middle ground to be. Uh, there's no middle ground to be had. There's no middle place in time. There's no middle place in eternity. So what I want to say, some of you in here may be unbelievers. Uh, you may be merely religious. Some of you may need to genuinely come to Christ and give yourself away to Him. If you don't know what that means, I invite you to come and speak with me. I'll be happy to talk with you about that. Others of you, those who know Christ, I want to challenge you tonight. As I always challenge you to be a radical follower of Jesus, but tonight I'm also, in addition to that, I want to challenge you to love people enough to share the biblical gospel with them. Not some dumbed-down, marketed... Um, uh, version of the gospel, but the biblical gospel. I challenge you to love people enough to share it with them. God says in Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which men must be saved. saved. And next week we will come together on what is known in the world as Easter. I like to call it Resurrection Sunday. Easter has some uh, unfortunate connotations if you go far enough back in history. I like to call it Resurrection Sunday. And we're going to come together and we're going to celebrate. We're going to remember that our great warrior shepherd, uh, God laid His life down for us. No man took His life, but He willingly and joyfully, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, laid it down for His people. And we're going to come together next week. We're going to celebrate that. We're going to celebrate our Lord's victory over sin, over death, and over the grave. I hope you'll come and worship Christ Jesus with us next week. Let's pray together. Father, this is a breathtaking, a breathtaking proposition. You have come in the person of your Son. <coughs> You have purchased life and eternity and salvation. You have purchased forever for us. That's why He's on the cross. That's why He's been nailed there. That's why He's torn and bloodied. And can it be that my God should die for me? Yes, it is the Gospel. 
It is the unbelievable, breathtaking truth of the Gospel. My God has died for me. Father, I pray this will not be a small thing to us. I pray that we would be stunned and staggered by it. I pray that it would infect the rest of our life. That we would live it out. This, this incredible joy and power and victory that we have in this Gospel. Father, we'd not just be Sunday afternoon churchgoers. But we'd be in the world doing the Word. Sharing the Gospel. There's not two ways to God. There's one way. His name is Jesus. I pray that we would have the courage and the integrity to share the truth, Lord. That You might draw many to Yourself in this place. Both in the Italian community and the international community. Lord, that tens of thousands would come to You in this place. There'd be a revival in this place. Because the revival started with Your people. Come, Lord God. Inhabit us. Empower us. Oh Lord, we don't want to be lukewarm anymore. We don't want to be lukewarm. Use us up, Father, we pray. I pray You'd be preparing our hearts this week as we think about what it cost for us to be saved. I pray that we would be thinking deeply about it. We'd be praying about it. We'd be reading the accounts. We would be broken about it. And yes, we would rejoice in it. So Lord, I pray for a profound week of worship in our hearts and in our minds as we prepare to celebrate what our beautiful warrior shepherd has done. We pray all this in His name. Amen. We have one last song. Let's all stand and sing All Hail King Jesus. <laughs>